0: "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves "'Did gyre and jimble in the wabe. "'All mimsy were the borogoves, "'And the moam wraths outgrabe. "'Beware the jabberwock, my son, "'The jaws that bite, the claws that catch. "'Beware the jubjub bird "'And shun the frumious bandersnatch. "'He took his vorpal sword in hand, "'Long time the manxum foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while and thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the togi wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back.
1: Lovely listeners out there in the Hinterlands, welcome back. This is Rock and I'm here with my co-host Max and we're gonna be your guides as we explore
0: all things supernatural here at Nightmares and Daydreams. Hey everyone, yes, welcome. As you surely know by now, Rock and I are here today to discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal, legendary, and monstrous. And, of course, fun.
1: Yes, fun. But, Max, do you want to know what's not fun? I never know, Rock. A deadly blade so sharp that it can lop off someone's head with one swing. I don't know, Rock. That sounds a little bit fun. Okay. How about a blade that was cursed, so that every time it was drawn it would kill someone before it was sheathed? Yeah, still not that bad. And it's cursed to eventually kill its wielder. Okay, now you ruined it. My bad. I didn't mean to mess up the murderously good time you might have had.
0: So we're talking about magical weapons today, lovely listeners.
1: Specifically, we're talking about
0: legendary magical swords. There are so many. And I don't know if the Vorpal Sword counts in terms of being legendary since Lewis Carroll first wrote about it in Through the Looking Glass in the 19th century. But it's a DD legendary sword, so I think it counts.
1: If it counts in d Max, it counts in real
0: life. We don't make the rules, we just roll on the random rule chart. So yeah, guys, when we say legendary, we're not just talking about the ancient stuff here, right? Vorpal Sword counts... Anyway, the guy that killed the Jabberwock isn't the only literary figure to wield the Vorval Sword.
1: Maybe could it be Drizzt of, The legendary drow ranger from the mind of R.A. Salvatore?
0: Nah, he had scimitars.
1: I knew that. I was just testing you. Dual magical scimitars, if I recall correctly. And one more test for you. What were their names, Max? It's been a long while since I've read me some Bob Salvatore. Same here. But I reread those books so many times back in the day that I remember their names. Twinkle and Icing Death. Those were the
0: names of Drizzt Swords. Damn, well done. You get a prize of some sort.
1: (laughs) I'll take tacos. So who were you referring to earlier when you said there was another literary figure to wield the Vorpal Sword? I'm
0: talking about Boy Blue from Fables, of course.
1: Great comic books. Legendary themselves. I haven't read them all the way through, so Boy Blue had the Vorpal Sword? That's pretty sweet.
0: Yeah, no spoilers, but he took the Witching Cloak and the Vorpal Sword on a mission to kill the adversary. If you want to know what happens, you're just going to have to read the fables, folks. Worth it. I need to finish those now
1: that the series is ended.
0: You definitely do. Bill Willingham, one of our greatest supporters. Yeah, right, yeah. Right there alongside Will Smith, who we mentioned in Gin. Exactly. Bill Willingham is the genius who wrote the series, and I'll read anything he puts
1: out. Agreed. All right, Max, on to legendary swords. Or to literary blades. Like the lightsaber. Eh, that's more a
0: class of blade, but I'm not opposed.
1: I was just kidding. Thundar the Barbarian sun sword, is way more interesting than a mere lightsaber, so let's talk about that instead.
0: Sure, I'll go along with about anything. That's how you end up on the dark side, son. I find your lack of faith disturbing.
1: They have the cooler powers. True, Force Lightning and Force Choke are kind of cool. So, back to swords. If we say magic sword, what's the first one you think of? Thundar's sun sword. (laughs) That sword kept him, Ukla the Mock, and Princess Ariel safe from all the mutants that inhabited the Earth in the year 1995. Be serious, son. Uh, Joking, but 95 was a good year. (laughs) Okay, I gotta say Excalibur. King Arthur's blade, always the first one that springs to mind.
0: Yeah, that's a big one. Maybe the big one. The sword Arthur drew from the stone. Or is it? There are conflicting stories around the origin of the blade, actually True, what you got on the various origins?
1: Well, the Sword in the Stone is the most famous Probably at least partly due to its being popular to depict in movies and TV shows Like the Sword in the Stone cartoon by Disney, for example And I love that cartoon, Max What's drawn the sword from the stone?
0: (laughs) Agreed, but
1: let's focus What do the actual legends say? They say different things. Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote the history of the kings of Britain. Historia Regum Britanniae, actually, for you Latinists out there. All right, now you're just showing off, Max. That's the name of the book. Anyway, so Geoffrey is the guy who Latinized the name of Arthur's Sword, which in the Welsh had been called Caldo so, Geoffrey Latinized it to Caliburnus, and then the French gave us Excalibur from that. Magnifique. Vive la France. Oh, la la, la fromage de l'empatillon du chèvrier de chevri, Henri conjure à la Hollingeros. <laughs> eh, what do you think about
0: that? <laughs> My thoughts exactly. But yeah, so there is a strong Arthurian tradition in France. Well, especially in Brittany, because the Welsh and the Cornish emigrated to the Armorican peninsula starting in the fourth century after the Romans left Britain but then especially during the Germanic invasion in the 5th and 6th centuries. So how did Geoffrey of Monmouth say Arthur got his sword?
1: So yeah, GM, Geoffrey of Monmouth. The original GM. Yeah, he actually doesn't describe how Arthur got the sword, but says it was made in Avalon. Fae blade.
0: Best kind, honestly. Though a dwarven blade could be cool as well, but we'll see later, the dwarves can be reluctant smiths and curse the blades sometimes that they make for mortal men. Well said. So
1: the power of Excalibur comes from its otherworldly origin. And GM says, in one battle, Arthur killed 470 men himself. That's too specific not to be totally true.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess they maybe employed someone as the royal body counter.
1: Exactly. But to your point, de Boron's Merlin, which we only have part of, is the first source that we have mentioning the sword in the stone. He tells the story of the anvil sitting on a stone appearing in a churchyard on Christmas Eve.
0: And our listeners will remember how magical such times are. Christmas and the winter solstice, when the veils between worlds are thin, is just the kind of time when such things happen. If you haven't listened, go back and revisit some Christmas cheer from last year. Precisely.
1: But Thomas Mallory in the 15th century gave us the phraseology that we know so well. Whoso pulleth out this sword of the stone and anvil is rightwise king born. Nice. But it seems like the Lady in the Lake story is the older version then? Well, hold on, it's kind of complicated. So Mallory says Arthur pulls a sword from the stone, but he says the Lady in the Lake gave him Excalibur.
0: So then, maybe the sword in the stone was a different magical sword?
1: Seemingly. According to Mallory at least, but the post Vulgate cycle, which is a collection of anonymous writings of which we have pieces, and seems to be from the 13th century according to our best
0: dating techniques, say the Lady in the Lake gave him the blade too. Huh, so the variations of the stories are roughly contemporary then, at least as much as we know. Because that's about the time of Robert de Baron, right? Exactly. So medieval monks needed to keep better records, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly though, one of my favorite versions of the story is not medieval at all.
1: We talk in the Excalibur movie from nineteen
0: eighty one? Dude. Dame Helen Mirren as Morgan Le Fay, Patrick Stewart as King Leo de Grants, Guinevere's dad. Loved it. Don't forget Gabriel
1: Byrne as Uther. Oh yeah, totally. And I had
0: Excalibur on
1: VHS tape for years. What's
0: a VHS tape? I'll oh, be quiet. No, seriously, that, that movie, that whole movie is a classic. <laughs> but no, I'm talking actually about Alfred Lord Tennyson's Idols of the King. And since we're on this subject, he sides with Mallory that the Lady of the Lake gave Excalibur to Arthur. Maybe we should read a bit. Love to.
1: Down from the casement, over Arthur smote flame-colored vert and azure in three rays, one falling upon each of three fair queens who stood in silence near his throne, the friends of Arthur gazing on him tall and bright, sweet faces who will help him at his need. And there I saw Mage Merlin, whose vast wit and hundred winters are but as the hands of loyal vassals toiling for their liege. And near him stood the Lady of the Lake, who knows a subtler magic than his own, clothed in white Samite, mystic, wonderful. She gave the king his huge cross-hilted sword, whereby to drive the heathen out. A mist of incense curled about her, and her face well nigh was hidden in the minister gloom. But there was heard among the holy hymns a voice of the waters, for she dwells down in a deep calm. Whatsoever storms may shake the world, and when the surface rolls, hath power to walk the waters like our lord. There likewise I beheld Excalibur, before him at his crowning born, The sword that rose from out of the bosom of the lake, and Arthur rode across and took it, rich with jewels, Elfin Urim, on the hilt, bewildering heart and eye, the blade so bright that men are blinded by it, on one side, graven in the oldest tongue of all this world. Take me, but turn the blade, and ye shall see, and written in the speech, ye speak yourself. Cast me away, and sad was Arthur's face, Taking it, but old Merlin counseled him. Take thou and strike, the time to cast away is yet far off. So this great brand the king took, and by this will beat his foemen down. You know, Max, we see that in a lot of magical swords, actually. What do we see? That the hero is given this incredible weapon that they have to use against a specific foe, or in a certain circumstance, but it's not theirs to keep forever. It's almost like the hero and the blade are mere tools of destiny.
0: True. That makes me think of one you alluded to in the intro, Tyrfing.
1: Perfect example. Yeah, the dwarves made the blade for Lami who was a grandson to Odin himself. Well, he forced them to. True. Yeah, he trapped Dvalin and Durin and compelled them to make him a magic sword. And I gotta say, Dvalin and Durin sounded like they could be part of Thorin's
0: crew of dwarves in The Hobbit. Am I right? (laughs) Absolutely. The names are very similar, to be sure. But going back to being forced to forge a blade for Svafur yeah, they didn't like
1: that too much. Not at all. They made him a sword. A sword with a golden
0: hilt that would never miss, never rust, and could cut through stone and iron. Sounds pretty cool. Sounds a little bit like uh, Stonecutter in the Books of Swords by Fred Saberhagen. Don't worry, we'll get to those, but we're talking about real stuff first. <laughs> Don't make me get
1: Farslayer out. That's a sword of vengeance. That doesn't really work out well for anyone, usually. But back to what I was saying. Back on track. So they made Spaffer Lami this amazing sword, but they cursed it as well. That's what you get for forced labor. There's always a price. Always. So how'd the curse work? Three things. It would kill someone every time it was drawn.
0: I mean, that sounds okay, but... I guess that means if you pull it out to sharpen it or something, someone's going down. Yeah, right, exactly. So what else? It would be the cause of three great evils. Sounds ominous, but also very
1: vague. Super ominous. And yeah, we don't want to get into the whole story, which is quite long, but a lot of good people died along the way. Including? Including?
0: The third part of the curse.
1: Oh, right, right. Okay, the third part of the curse was that the wielder of the blade would himself be slain by it. I see, that's the real downer. Right. So thought so too. He tried to kill Devalin, the Dwarf Smith, with the sword, but he disappeared into the mountain and the king just stabbed his blade through a boulder.
0: At least it could cut boulders.
1: Yeah, that's a mighty power right there. Impressive, but kind of useless. Unless, of course, you're fighting a stone golem or something. Good point. So just real quick, because there are a ton of magical swords out there, and we were just knee-deep in Irish myth last episode when we talked about leprechauns, I'd like to bring up the legendary Irish sword called... Fragarak.
0: Okay, is that the sword of Mananen MacLear, the Irish god of the sea?
1: Damn, well done. Yeah, according to the lore, Fragarak, also known as the Answerer, or the Retaliator, was the blade of and MacLear. It was called the Answerer because when Fragarak was held at the throat of an enemy, that enemy could speak no untruth.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if that would be the magic of the sword itself or just the fact that you have a sword at your throat. If that's me, I'm not lying. It
1: also had the power to summon the wind, and like a lot of other magical swords, could damn near cut through anything. Armor couldn't stop it, and it would inflict wounds that no man could recover from.
0: That doesn't seem fair,
1: <laughs> but pretty pretty powerful blade. But why is it called the Retaliator? From what I came across, it's because it retaliated against any strike against the wielder. Like if you were struck, Fragarak would immediately retaliate and unerringly return the attack.
0: Mighty weapon Indeed. But if my Irish lore is correct, Mananen MacLear has a host of magical items and weapons at his disposal. So it fits that he'd have a weapon like Gregorak on his hip.
1: Yeah, he's not one to trifle with. As god of the sea, he had a magical ship that could go above and under the waves and just a host of other magical items.
0: So let's talk about the Books of Swords. Lead on. So you remember Coin Spinner? That was your favorite.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember our old DM told me he made that sword up. I was all impressed until I read the books. (laughs) Shout out to Double S. You ran some good games, man. Uh, That's hilarious.
0: But hey, let's be honest. When you run in a game, you use any and every resource on hand.
1: True, true, man. I've used many sources of inspiration for my games. So why don't you give our lovely listeners some context for these swords? There were 12 of them, correct? Correct.
0: Yeah, so the context is kind of post-apocalyptic, but the world has come back around to a kind of feudal medieval situation.
1: So we don't know if this is a past or the future
0: or what, right? Well, it's supposed to be in the far, far future, I think, like 50,000 years or something like that. But there are gods like Vulcan in the book, who, and he's the one who actually made the swords. But the intimation is that we created the gods via our collective imagination, so Mostly classical gods and Hindu gods, if I remember correctly.
1: But the second time around for these gods, and he made the swords too powerful, right?
0: Yeah, and it came back to bite Vulcan himself, personally. Shieldbreaker, specifically, was the one I think he might have regretted making. So what are the different ones, then? So, let's see. There's Townsaver, the Sword of Fury. Shieldbreaker, the Sword of Force. Stonecutter, the Sword of Siege, to which I alluded earlier.
1: That one could cut through stone like tearfing. Exactly. There's Wound Healer, the Sword of Mercy. That one healed people instead of hurting people. Interesting idea.
0: There's Doom Giver, the Sword of Justice. Coin Spinner, the Sword of Chance.
1: That's the one our idea made up that cheeky bastard.
0: Who holds Coin Spinner knows good odds, whichever move he make. But the Sword of Chance to please the gods slips from him like a snake
1: nice yeah each sword had a rhyme that told of its powers and drawbacks i kind of forgot about that so you were endowed with amazing luck when you had coin spinner but it would disappear typically when you needed it the most
0: right so there was dragon slicer the sword of heroes Fire slayer the sword of vengeance which i was going to use on you earlier yeah, thank you for
1: not using it and the guys regretted that one quite a bit too as i recall exactly Let's see.
0: Oh, yeah. Mind Sword, the Sword of Glory or the Sword of Madness, depending on your opinion. Sight blinder, the Sword of Stealth. Wayfinder, the Sword of Wisdom. And Soulcutter, the Sword of Despair. Such friendly swords. So, are there books for each one, Max? So, I believe the concept was that each one would have a novel that told its story. But I think he kind of George R. 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 martin the whole thing. <laughs> and... But they're standalone books, so they're well worth reading, and you won't get stuck in a story with no end.
1: So we might as well talk about some literary swords since we're on the subject.
0: I like that idea. So, besides lightsabers, what are some of your faves? Uh, Endural and Glamdring from the Lord of the Rings. Nice. Aragorn's Blade, the blade that was broken. And Gandalf's blade, the
1: faux hammer, both elven blades, right? All the good stuff was elven in Lord of the Rings. Seems like. Sting was pretty good, too, for a small blade. Yeah, Bilbo's and then Frodo's blade. Mithril, super sharp, glowed when orcs came around. What else do you need? Also, very reminiscent of the Moonblade in 90s D&D canon. Shout out to Elaine Cunningham. So the Moonblade glowed when orcs were about, gave you the dream warning of danger if you were asleep.
0: Nice things to have adventuring around Faerun solo. The old school TSR days, good times. Mm-hmm. Speaking of smaller blades, the subtle knife in Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials is pretty sweet, actually. Sharp enough to cut reality itself, yeah.
1: And I am digging the HBO series, just FYI. It also allowed the wielder to step through to other worlds. Pretty sweet. It's sweet except for the specters that came through as well.
0: Yeah, there's always got to be a drawback. So Elric's swords have to be mentioned. Morn Blade and Stormbringer. That's classic fantasy right there. Michael Moorcock... Local-ish author?
1: Yeah, yeah. He lives in Austin or Bastrop, something. Gotta support the locals, even if they're British. <laughs> and talk
0: about a cursed blade. Stormbringer is right up there. Oh yeah. Indeed, D terms, Stormbringer is a life stealer, right? Like it consumes the soul of whoever Elric
1: uses it to kill in battle. So I think the blade is technically called a nine life stealer at the gaming table, yeah. But Stormbringer and Mornblade go beyond that. Both blades are demons of chaos in the form of swords. And Stormbringer often betrays Zelric, forcing him to kill
0: comrades and even lovers. Yeah, that sucks. See, folks, even though they might make you invincible on the battlefield, the price can be quite high indeed.
1: So would you do it? Do what? Wield a blade of immense power that would take control of you every so often and slaughter those around you? Yeah, I don't know. It's very much like donning the wolfskin belts that we discussed in our werewolves episode. You receive great power, but ultimately don't have full control over that power, and the end result of that is the loss of innocent lives. Maybe even family members.
0: Personally, no. You know, I don't think I'd do it. Same.
1: Hey, but let's hear a story of a man who decided to try and tame a Blade of Legend. You in? You know it? all the magic weapons created by smiths, both fey and mortal, swords were the proudest. The sword was an instrument of destruction. Unlike the axe or the bow which could be used in farming and hunting, the sword had only one use, to kill other men. One legendary weapon that Viking Skald sang of was the sword Skofnung, which the warrior king Rolf Kraki wielded in defense of his people and lands. It was said that the bloodlust of Skoffnung was so great that it would shriek in its scabbard at the sounds of battle and the sight of wounds, begging to be released so that it could join in the bloodletting. When Kraki died, Skoffnung was buried with him. His people wanted little to do with the blade, too frightened to claim it, and so for two long centuries Skoffnung lay undisturbed and untouched in the death grip of its former master. And forgotten Skoffnung would have remained if it wasn't for a minor warrior chief called Skeggi. With his followers looking on in fear, Skeggy dug up the grave of Froth Kraki and wrested the weapon from his skeletal hands. The desecration of a grave was no simple thing, and the desecration of a king's grave even more so. Skegi's followers were certain that Skoffnung would leap from its scabbard and hack their leader to pieces. But it did not. It seemed the blade was glad to see the light of day, and the possibility of new battles to be fought. Skeggy had no doubt he could tame the blade, for he studied the lore of Skavnung and knew what he must do to be the sword's partner. 1. He must never unsheath the blade without the intention of drawing blood. If he did, and there was no blood to be drawn, he must shed his own blood in order to slake the sword's thirst. Two. The sun should never be allowed to shine fully on the handle of Skoffnung. 3. The eyes of a woman should never rest on the unsheathed blade. All these rules Skeggy followed and so became unstoppable on the battlefield, and he and his people enjoyed a period of wealth and prosperity brought on by the cursed sword. One day skegi's boon companion Cormac asked Skegi to borrow the blade to fight a duel. Skegi knew Cormac to be a wise man and good fighter, but denied the request. Yet Cormac was relentless, repeating the folklore of wielding Skoffnung. Finally, Skegi relented and lent his follower the magic blade. But treasures have a way of making wise men foolish, and Cormac began breaking the rules of wielding Skoffnung almost immediately. He unsheathed the blade in full bright sunshine in front of his mother, boasting of the exquisite weapon his chieftain had lent him. Skoffnung flew into a rage at the sheer stupidity and arrogance of Cormac. The enchanted blade was no plaything to be lent from man to man, it was a mighty weapon that only allowed the bravest and boldest to wield it. Flying from his grip, the vengeful sword hacked and sliced both Cormac and his unfortunate mother to death, before violently throwing itself against a large boulder and shattering itself
0: beyond repair. Dang, the sword committed suicide. It's like
1: Skoffnung was still so pissed after killing Cormac and his poor mom that the only way to alleviate its anger
0: was to shatter itself. Sucks for Skeggy, He never should have lent that sword to his boy. True, Cormac sounded like he knew what he was talking about, but as soon as he had the blade in his hand, he lost his damn mind. Look, mom, a cursed blade that will make me invisible in my upcoming duel. <laughs> the idiot.
1: <laughs> what do we learn here today, people? Don't lend your magical weapons to your friends, okay? Yeah, no matter how much they seem to know the lore surrounding it. All right,
0: Max. So let's go back to other magical swords, shall we? Let's do it. So we can't forget the sword of Shinara. Ah, old school. I don't remember what that sword did, but I guess it was pretty good since the book is named after it.
1: <laughs> Terry Brooks read that way back in the day as well. If I recall correctly, the Sword of Shannara has the power to reveal the truth about anyone or anything. Handy power that. Agreed. And the show. Did you ever watch that show? Nah. I think it's on MTV, right? Not your typical fantasy venue. I saw the first season, and I'm sure some folks liked it enough. It had at
0: least one more season. You know, I think our audience would not be happy if we didn't mention at least some of the magic swords from George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. Am I right? Ah, yes. Speak to us of swords, Max. Rot of the Legendary Valerian Steel. Well, as you know, Valyrian steel swords, along with dragon glass, are the only things that can kill White Walkers entirely, which, you know, is a good thing.
1: Yeah, not so much for the White Walkers, but yeah. And uh, what are some of the names of these legendary swords?
0: All us Stark fans will remember Ice, mm-hmm. the ancestral great sword held by Ned Stark until it was used to chop his head off. Not cool. Damn that, Joffrey. Yeah, the one thing about Ice is that it was used to create two other swords. Tywin Lannister melted ice down and had Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail made. Those blades were used by Jaime and Joffrey, Lannister, respectively. Longclaw is the one that stuck out for me.
1: Former House Mormont sword given to Jon Snow.
0: Yeah, there's also Heartsbane, the sword of House Tarly.
1: Which Sam gave to Jorah Mormont to be used during the Battle of Winterfell. And I really liked Sam's
0: character. He was so friendly. (laughs) Ditto. Okay, let's get back to real magic swords. Real legendary, anyway. True. Let's speak of Gram, the sword of Sigurd. Ah, yeah. Love me some Valsung, Saga. Sigurd used the sword Gram, which means wrath in Old Norse, to kill the dragon Fafnir. Gram is described as being all decked with gold and beaming bright. As a sword of legend should be. Also, like many other swords of legend, it was a boon from the gods, Odin in this specific case. Man, you
1: always got to watch out for a gift from that guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In the guise of a mortal man, he embedded the sword into a tree that was growing in the middle of where a wedding feast was taking place and said something along the lines of, whoever pulls the sword will receive it as a gift from me and find out that it's an awesome sword. I'm paraphrasing here. (laughs) You could have fooled
1: me, that sounded very (laughs) Norse. Also very Excalibur-like, pulling the blade from the tree. Very akin to the sword and the stone. True, like a test of strength and character to prove your worthiness to wield the weapon. Okay, so Graham was a blade created by Odin, and I imagine a
0: hero pulled it from the tree? Yeah, Sigmund drew it. And long story on how the sword eventually makes its way into the hands of his son Sigurd, and how Sigurd eventually gets the sword reforged by the treacherous dwarf Regan to kill the dragon Fafnir. You gotta go read the Folsung saga, people. Very cool.
1: Agreed. And I like the whole sword that was broken theme. Token borrowed that with Narsal and used it to perfection, might I add? Exactly. You ready for another story? Yeah, let's do it.
0: Jatayu, king of the vultures, saw Ravana's chariot, his golden Ratha, fly over, led by glowing mules with a woman in it crying for help. Languorously, he roused himself from his roost and flapped up to the magical Ratha. Sita saw him and called to him, Jatayu, save me. Tell Rama that Ravana has taken me. Jatayu tucked in his wings, gliding alongside the car, and chided Ravana, warning him, Rama is the lord of the earth. Your way leads to death, Rakshasa. But Ravana just shot an arrow at the mighty bird, singeing his wing with a fiery bolt. Ululating like a mighty eagle, Jatayu attacked the demon. His magical mule shrieked in terror, tossing the chariot about like a feather in a storm. Jatayu was old, but from an ancient and noble bloodline. He was willing to die to stop the rakshasa from kidnapping Sita. Jatayu raked the rakshasa's hide with his razor talons. Ravana howled in pain and his dark blood fell. He shot ten arrows at Jatayu, who dodged them and rose high above, swooping down like a fishing eagle for its silver prey beneath the waves. He snatched Ravana's jeweled bow from his hands and snapped it in his beak. Then he flew again at the mule's, "'falling on them with wings like swords. "'He raked their eyes with his talons, blinding them. "'He killed them in the sky "'and sent the chariot plummeting to the earth. "'Just before it shattered on the rocks, "'Ravana snatched Sita in his arms and leaped out. "'Setting her down, eyes lit as if on fire, "'he roared and drew his great curved sword, Chandrahas, "'the moonblade of Shiva. "'Jatayu swooped down again, but growing tired now, "'for he was ancient.' With two strokes of his blade, Ravana sliced off mighty Jatayu's wings. The eagle fell, blood spouting from his wounds, dying. Screaming, Sita ran to the fallen Jatayu, his blood drenching her clothes as she embraced him. She kissed him again and again, crying, Oh, Jatayu, you have died for me.
1: Sad story. Poor Jatayu. Also, that was more of a Sword of Sharpness rather than a Vorpal Blade that the Rock Sasha had.
0: <laughs> yeah, similar but different. For you youngins, the Sword of Sharpness goes back to the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons, where it was differentiated from the Vorpal Sword because it randomly severed an extremity, arms, legs, or head, whereas the Vorpal Sword only cut off the head.
1: And I don't know if you remember this, but in first
0: edition, all Swords of Sharpness were chaotic. Well, then I don't think Ravana could have wielded it, because in first edition monster manual, Rakshasas were lawful evil. In fact, I think they've stayed lawful evil through
1: every edition of D&D. Obviously, Chandrahas is just a unique artifact rather than a true sort of sharpness. I'm glad we cleared that up for all you folks out there. I'm sure they're going to sleep better. Guys, send us any and all gaming questions, and we will settle the gaming table disputes free of charge. And our word is final. (laughs) Well, with that mystery solved, I think we've about wrapped things up today. I think we have. So, guys and gals, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you listen to us on.
0: And, just to be clear, those are two separate things. Rating us five stars is super helpful, but your kind words in a review are just the best.
1: Yeah, we joke around a lot, but to be serious, just for a sec. They help us tremendously. Also, send us a tweet, find us on Facebook, and visit our website at nightmarespodcast.net. Holler at your boys, why don't you?
0: And don't forget, the bard of our show, Teresa Joy, Created our theme music and helps give us such a unique and professional sound.
1: She has a new album out as well. Go follow her on Facebook and Instagram at Viobrite, V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, and check out all of her music at TeresaJoymusic.com. But for now that's gonna do it. So sheath your blades, lovely listeners, and let's take care of each other out there in these uncertain times. And as always, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.